0: This is Poetry on the Move. In this episode, Poet to Poet, a conversation on translation between poets and translators Shola Wolpe and Keijiro Suga. Both Shola Wolpe and Keijiro Suga are noted translators of poetry. Suga is a scholar of poetic translation at major university in Tokyo, who regularly translates from French, English and Spanish into Japanese. Wolpe's translations from Farsi into English, including influential Iranian poet Farouk Farzad and the new translation of Attar's Persian classic, The Conference of the Birds, have opened the rich tradition of Persian poetry to readers in English. In this discussion hosted by Australian poet Melinda Smith, we asked them to speak together about the art of translating poetry. The session begins with a short reading from both Shola Woppe, followed by Kedro Suga.
1: Pleasure to be here. Just um, a little bit about um, the po- this this translation of uh, the Conference of the Bird by Atar, 12th century Sufi mystic poet. Those of you who um, May know Rumi. Who knows Rumi? Yeah, I see because he's been translated and translated and translated. Um, Rumi wrote about Attar Attar traveled all the seven cities of love while I am only at the bend of the first alley. That's what Rumi thought about Attar. This book is a life changing book, honestly. I spent three years translating it. So I'm not gonna talk much about it because we will later. I just want to um, read just a little snippet from it just to give you the taste, put it on your tongue so you can suck on it while we talk. The Conference of the Birds begins with the birds of the world gathering to seek their sovereign and Uh, The hoopoe guides them. And each bird uh, at first is very, very excited, but then they want to, uh, they come up with excuses not to go. It's really a story of us. The hoopoe guides them and offers them a lot of wisdom. And I'm going to just read you a little bit about um, love. Whether you're an ascetic or a libertine. When you fall in love, your heart becomes the enemy of yourself and you'll no longer care about yourself. Therefore, let go of your ego. It's the road's end anyway. Ego is a dam that keeps you from the path. Give up your eyes so that you may see if you are told to abandon your faith or command it to give up yourself, who are you to refuse? Renounce them both. Naysayers say, this is blasphemy. Tell them, love is above heresy and faith. What does love have to do with belief or unbelief? What do lovers have to do with life's trappings? Love insists on the heart's bleeding pain. Love demands a gnarled and arduous tale. An iota of love is better than all the worlds. A morsel of lover's pain is better than the lovers themselves. Love is the magnetic core that draws everything together, but beware. There is no perfect love without pain. Staunch your fear and step forward. Leave faith and blasphemy behind. Don't worry, don't be childish. Don't hesitate. Go on, be bold. Take the first step.
2: Thank you
3: Thank Magnificent presentation of such great poet as Atta. How dare can I read my own (laughs) poem? Well, but uh, something I had in my mind was to give you the Japanese original first so that you can have some sense of the sound, rhythm, and music of Japanese. And then I will read this English translation, which mostly I did uh, with a helping friend from a friend of mine, an American friend. So, here goes the original. So, you don't worry about the meaning of it at this stage. 12月が真夏の国では サンタクロースはテディベア夏がれた草原を失踪するためにチョコレート色のラブラドルをトナカイとして使うテディベアの仕事は贈り物の回収重力心が now, you will see what it means. It is in this chapter. And the title is, In the Country Where December is in Midsummer. In the country where December is in Midsummer, Santa Claus is a teddy bear. He uses a chocolate-colored Labrador for a reindeer so he can slay through the wizard grasslands. Teddy bear's work is to collect gifts Just as there is anti-gravity for gravity, all gifts call for anti-gifts. I love this. After I want this, I want that, turns into not really. Once you are actually given what you wanted, gifts lie dormant in your rooms. The animal Santa retrieves them and sends them back to heaven so you can become lighter than speech balloons and less afraid of the unknown and even of death. When your heart clears up, the atmospheric pressure rises accordingly, blowing away the sheep and the clouds and the sky becomes blue, expanse. The universe also clears up. Now my blue stratocaster can cast pebble-like notes up into the stratosphere. Listen, I'm playing this for my animal Santa. From the vibrating strings, at each moment departs an invisible arrow to hit the evil, to hit demons. And when struck by the arrow, dead birds come hurriedly back to life. And take to flight once again with good humor. That's Teddy Bear's victory. That's Labrador's glory. That's our Christmas prayer. That's the best possible gift we have for the world. Thank you. (laughs)
2: reading. Most of um, Suga sensei's translation work is into Japanese and so at an event like this where most of the audience don't understand Japanese, um, he hasn't got a lot to choose from to to read to us in English. But I'm really glad that you read that poem. That's one of my favourite ones in the the Transit Blues chapbook. Um, So we're now going to have a little chat about um, the art of translation. And um, I'm going to start with probably what's the most obvious question. You're both uh, very decorated, very active poets in your own right. And do you feel that being a poet in your own right affects the way that you approach translation and the result that you come out with, as opposed to just someone who's very skilled in um, both languages? Would you like to start? Sure.
3: Okay. Well... That puts me into a very difficult situation because I began writing poems very late in my life, after I turned 50, actually. And uh, before that, I was just a literary scholar. And there is a big gap between a student of literature and a creator, writer of literature. And um, as for translation, well, I have begun, as a translator, but not only literary, but in any genre. I worked in, for example, philosophy, biology, cultural anthropology, literature, of course, and some journalism as well. And even some, uh, something like uh, city planning or the uh, aquaculture of trout, <laughs> <laughs> things like that. So, you know, it has been a part of my job all my life. But while doing that, I have always been interested in foreign languages, uh, mainly English, French, and a little bit of Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, so my mind was like constantly in this uh, bubbling state with different languages. That logically led me to write poetry. So to me, uh, translation is at the heart in heart of my poetics and what I always had in mind was to say something anew, something probably very banal or you know something very common but we can invent a way to say it differently and that was my main concern in my writing poems in Japanese so that was all about translation in a sense.
2: That's a, that's a fascinating way round, a fascinating journey mm-hmm. um, to have come on to come to um, poetry via translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was it like for you, Shirley? I had the opposite.
1: Yes, it's really. Uh, I uh, I'm. I don't consider myself a translator, really. I mean, I don't want to be called a literary translator because I'm a writer. I'm. You know, I, I began. My career as a poet. I'm a playwright, I write essays, you know, I write flash fiction. I translate because I believe it's a sin not to translate when you're bilingual and bicultural. Because we live in a world that politicians have taken over. And they're not building bridges, they're destroying bridges. And I believe that it is poetry, literature, the arts, these are bridge makers. And therefore, I thought, because I am bilingual, bicultural, and I write in English, if I don't bring over some of these beautiful pearls from Iran, then Iran will be only known as a terrorist state, which is the making of politicians. It's not the people. So that is why I translate.
2: That's fabulous. Thank you. Um, So I suppose that leads quite um, wonderfully into the next question. I was going to ask a little bit about translation as a kind of slipping between identities um, there's this wonderful piece, um, I'm sure a lot of the people here who are into Australian poetry would have read in Cordite. Um, a poet from Aotearoa, New Zealand, Anahera Gilda, or Gildia, wrote a piece about translation called Bone Shame The Liminal Space Where Translation Fails. It's a beautiful article, but um, she says um, a couple of wonderful things about the process and what it feels like for her translating between. te reo reo Māori and um, English, Um, particularly uh, she says that languages are constrained by what has to be said and by what must be articulated because it is unavoidable in that particular language. Um, And in the case of uh, te reo Māori, what must be articulated are relationships, genealogy, and the ones that often stretch from the beginning of time. And in Maori she says, I cannot truly explain to you what I'm doing um, without also having divulged who I am in relation to everything else. I do not exist solely as an individual. I'm part of a tribe, a clan, a larger collective. And then she says, when required to translate between languages, therefore I'm required to translate between to cultures or sets of words but also between two identities and the liminal space between those identities is often immense and always uncomfortable and so that's what it feels like for her and I wanted to take that as a jumping off point and um, ask is that how you experience translation or is it something completely different for you maybe we could start with you surely this time
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, there is a Prussian uh, philosopher, 18th century, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt. He talks about uh, how every culture, in every culture, language exists in a third space that's between the empirical world, which is the world that exists, and the internal consciousness of a culture. And he says that language is this third universe that's between the outer and the inner. And so language is not something you can plug into Google and come up with what is being said, right? So that's why I don't really, in, in, in literature, I don't really even like the word translation. I like the word recreation because you have to recreate that poem or, or story in the third universe of the target language, of the target culture. So it is not, it is not something that you just carry over easily. Um, do, do, what do you think? Do you find that?
3: <laughs> you know, the word identity bothers me a lot it has always did that. Um, the main reason is in Japan, as you might imagine, it's such a monolithic society in a sense, which is a lie, but you know, people tend to believe that. And there is this myth of purity, purely Japanese, purely traditional, things. that kind of discourse just takes over everything and it covers wraps up the Japanese society in a transparent thin film, as if. And that's something I really didn't like. And the word identity always work in both ways, which is a designation from outside. Somebody else designates you as such and such. That's one aspect of identity. The other aspect is, of course, you self-declare who you are. And uh, I have always been interested in literature by minority people, so to say, and especially the uh, American ethnic group uh, people, Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, or Native American, uh, African-American, of course. And one of the um, American Indian author, Jimmy Santiago Baca, he once said this very memorable sentence, don't depend on America to tell you who you are. And I think it concisely, you know, uh, summarizes the kind of attitude we need to uh, acquire by our own volition, this identity of who you are. So, uh, you know, I really didn't have any uh, identity crisis or something uh, in a way that some bicultural, bilingual people may experience as I grew up. Uh, So I I really can't say much about the kind of uh, really deep cultural separation you may experience because I've never experienced that. But on the other hand, in my own struggle against that kind of dominant force that forces you to say something or do something in the Japanese society, I always wanted to define myself as some kind of hybrid creature. And the I am biologically I'm not hybrid of anything. Not between me and the wolf or me, the no, no, dog and human or something. So I decided to make myself over as a linguistic being by introducing many different foreign languages into myself. Which I called later as I began learning Pigeon Creole Linguistics at the University of Hawaii, I began to call it pigeon Ethics. So that became my uh, life principle, sort of. Mm. So, you know, it, it does have a lot to do with what kind of language you use or what kind of language you write in. And so, you know, it does have much to do with this question between language and identity
1: it's interesting because I had, again, the exact opposite experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, th- this question of identity for me, I, I left Iran at age 13. I, went, I lived uh, in Trinidad in the Caribbean. I went to a Catholic high school. We're not Catholics. So I went to a Catholic high school there uh, in a small village, Kuva. Then I went to a British boarding school. I graduated high school there and then I lived all over the United States which as you know you know it's like many many cultures depending on where you go. So uh, this question of home, identity, who I am, am I where I came from? Mm, not really am I where I am?
2: Not really. So, you know.
3: That's, I understand. It's yeah, that. really yeah. fascinating.
2: It's like in your poem you say I have an accent in every language I speak. I oh, do. Yeah. Um, so we're, I think both of us, in, both of our guests in different ways are getting comfortable in that space um, or at least learning to live with that space between um, different kinds of... Right, right. what you, you know, might more traditionally think of as identity or home. Um,
3: you know, I grew up in Japan, but I moved a lot. So uh, I grew up in the Japanese language exclusively. But I have been exposed to many different dialects. So in a very small way, I kind of know that kind of feeling. Very very small way.
2: I mean, the dialects in Japan are so different that they have to put subtitles on the news if they have somebody from uh, utter northern Japan talking about something they, the people from southern Japan won't be able to understand. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can understand that. Um, So I'd like to pose a slightly different question now. Um, And we were talking about this yesterday in... in, For those people who were lucky enough to go to the symposium yesterday, uh, there was a panel that touched on um, translation issues. um, And uh, in Subash's paper, he was talking about... um, Selan, who translated between lots of different languages, he conceived of translation as a despairing conversation because of the things you have to leave behind when you translate something. Um, Most often several things. And um, Robert Frost has famously and very grumpily said, poetry is what is lost in translation. So his view is, you you know, it doesn't translate at all. Um, But, uh, you know, I certainly am not of the view that everything has to get left behind, but I'm pretty certain some stuff must be left behind. Um, how do you, in your own translation practice, how do you decide what you have to leave behind and what you want to prioritize in, in bringing across into the target language?
1: Can I answer that first? Yeah, this may be me. I, first of all, I disagree with that. I don't think things are lost. It depends on who is recreating. I leave nothing behind. Honestly, that's why it took three years of backbreaking work to translate Atur. That's why it took many years to translate Faruk Farukzad because I enter every poem as I've written. Translation is a scalpel; you cut to the bone, to the marrow, and you take from it because you learn from it. But you leave nothing behind because what is Communicated through language, there can be communicated in the target language. You just have to really work hard to recreate it in a very, um, in a very uh, fresh way. When I was translating Farooq Saad, <clears throat> which, if you don't know who she is, it's your loss. You've really got, a, you know, you've got to pick up a copy of Sin and, and learn lear, lear who she is. She's magnificent. But when I was translating her, modern Persian poetry, if you trans, just translate it, bring it over, cliche city. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's a flowery language. It's beautiful. And we love it, but it won't work in English. Therefore, I worked as a poet. I had to recreate every word, every sentence, every idea in a fresh way so that when you read it in English, you say, wow, this is poetry. Not like some 10th grade, you know, uh, flowery thing somebody wrote. If it's a love poem, it's got to hit you as a love poem. If it's angry, it has to really be adult angry. Um, so, yeah, so I, that's my thing. I do not agree, you know.
3: You know, that touches upon a very important concept of transcreation that Melinda reminded me of by Aroldo de Campos, the Brazilian poet. And so it's really all about not translation, but... Recreation creation or trans-creation in another language and for that matter I really can't say much because I don't think before I translate <laughs> each time I have a deadline right and so in order to make that I have to work constantly to make that deadline and I don't have the luxury of thinking deeply about it So it becomes more like automatic and uh, you know ad hoc decision a succession of them so um but still uh, going back to this uh the idea of trans creation it is closely associated with the brazilian modernist concept of anthropophago which means anthropophagy i mean cannibalism right so you eat the author up entirely and it becomes the author becomes from inside as if this author is eating you up, you know? So it's a mutual anthropophagy, mutual cannibalism. So out of that comes out something uh, to which only your judgment matters, and that is the privilege of a translator, Mm -hmm. and I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. So you are the one to decide and uh, I, um, you know, always, sometimes I'm reluctant to decide, but still I uh, come up with some kind of a temporarily definitive version, you know? It's never really a final version, never, but still you have to put a period at a certain point.
1: But there's something that fascinates me, if I may ask I a question. I can never translate myself. Because I once created, I cannot recreate myself. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? How do you do that?
3: I am a language teacher. (laughs) I teach English, right? So uh, I constantly have to revise my students' composition in English. And that probably leads me to do something very weird and perverse. as (laughs) as self-translation <laughs> but then you know basically all my poems I translate myself into English and I haven't really uh, asked somebody to translate mine and uh, well I'm I'm probably uh, skipping a little ahead but uh, you know but uh, a good friend of mine Doug Slaymaker, who has translated uh, several novels in Japanese to American English and uh, He's a very good translator. But uh, all I ask him to do is, I translate my own poems, then I ask him to uh, point out some grammatical mistakes and such, or something too weird to figure out. And then, you know, so it's really my own self-translation with a little bit of correction and advice from him. But then, sometimes he over-corrects me That much I can tell because, you know, oh, but this is not exactly what I wanted. So in one way or the other, I have to have the final word for it. Mm -hmm. But of course, English is not my native tongue, and I make a lot of mistakes, even after 50 years almost of learning English. And then sometimes I need a second opinion. You know, for this time, uh, in the production of this chapbook, I sent out my corrections pointed out by Doug Slamaker to Paul Munden and Paul kindly suggested to translate it back to my version, you know, (laughs) at two or three points. So I really can't tell much about what I'm actually doing but still at one level, I am the person to say this is it, right? So, who else can do that for your own, I mean, your th- pawns? You just leave it to your translator? Yeah, Yeah.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I first of all, I don't let just anyone translate me. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they do. Uh, when languages I don't know, I just say what, whatever. Yeah. But uh, in Persian, uh, I only allow poets who I truly trust Mm -hmm. translate me, and then I give them carte blanche. That's good. um, Mm -hmm. Because I want to have carte blanche when I translate Mm -hmm. somebody. I don't want them to be hovering over me to tell me. uh, Once I understand the poem, okay, once I know what's being said, I do not want to be told how to recreate it. If they tell me, I give the poem back to them and tell them to go find mm-hmm. somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps it's a bit arrogant, but it really isn't. It's because of my love of poetry, my love of language. I, I cannot, if I, if I put something, my name to it, I want to make sure it's even better than the, than the original. So, so I'm doing a service. And, you know, and if they don't want my service, then I withdraw it.
2: (laughs) That's fabulous. I was actually just going to ask you that question, so that's really... um, This is going just so swimmingly well. Um, I was wondering um, if I could ask another question to Suga-sensei. If... We kind of touched on it before. um, It seems like translation is... Is you? I think you said it yourself. It's central to your poetics. It's one of the things that um, you appear to be having in your toolbox for making poems with. And um, some of your poems have multiple languages in them and multiple translated poems sitting within them. There's one in the the Transit Blues um, chapbook which has got um, Basho in the translation and Bousson in the translation, little mini poems like little jewels sitting inside your poem, as well as bits of um, philosophy that have been translated from Japanese and bits of Spanish and French as well. Um, I wonder whether you'd like to speak generally about how translation informs your poetics or maybe even specifically about that poem and how that kind of coalesced.
3: Yes, uh, this piece, rather longish, it's in this chapbook and called Transit Blues. This is, so to speak, an occasional piece, which is I wrote on demand. I was invited to a symposium called Lyrics in Transition. And Lyrics uh, in tran- Transition and Transit, I forgot. Yeah, transition, yeah, Transit. Sure. Lyrics in Transit. And it's, uh, it was held at the University of Trier in Germany And uh, they asked me to use the word transit, transition, translation, trans, et cetera, et cetera, in my own poem. And uh, this person also asked me to use as many languages (laughs) as I could. (laughs) So I threw in a bit of, you know, French, Spanish, et cetera. But it's it's really kind of a certain joke, Mm. to be honest. But still, it works sometimes, you know. It works to create some kind of atmosphere that belongs to nowhere, or no nationality, no national languages. And uh, so the the narrator of this poem is very hard to locate, and uh, it is not, of course, me. You know, it's a fictional figure. Still somebody who has a lot to do with my own self.
0: Yeah,
2: I I didn't feel as a reader that any of the extra language bits were forced. I felt like they came out at at the right time in the right rhythm. So um, that's interesting that you were trolling a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah. But but I'm always constantly thinking about different expressions in different languages. And I always acquire something new on every trip of mine. For example, for example, this morning, I went to a cafe, right? And then I ordered a kuwa and this girl says, sure, no worries, you know? And then then I said, and I also want a long black. No worries, what size? And I said, oh, make it big, and no worries. So she always finishes her sentence with no worries, which I really liked. (laughs) But do we have an equivalent to it in Japanese? No, I don't think so. So that tells al- that a little tells bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, but that's too formal, you know? <laughs> and it's very encouraging, too.
1: But
0: that's and
3: I got worried do I look that worried?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. I, I think actually that's a really good example of how you would recreate something because I truly believe through translation we enrich languages. And therefore, why come up with something equivalent? Why not just bring that exactly as it is? And then end it with that, do I look worried? Because then you get the
3: joke. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. Maybe that leads us to a question of how literal your translation be. You know, word-to-word translation or use something totally different. Uh, what, what are the words you used, Melinda?
2: Uh, I think metaphrase metaphrase and paraphrase, you know, going back to kind of very early Uh clunky old translation Uh theory. uh uh And, you know, it's not like any translation can be all one or all the other. But um, but they're kind of, you know, there's two poles between which the idea is you oscillate depending on, you know, who you are, what you're translating, how you like to work Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what the thing is that you are trying to. To transcreate into the other language, but um, maybe Shola, do you have? Are you aware of any kind of dynamic like that when you're translating, or are you working in a different kind of mental space?
1: Well, as I said, I'm really into recreating the third universe, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you come up with equivalents. It's just you know working in a different space. For example, Farooq Farooq "Coined a phrase saying." Uh, may you be green from head to toe that does not exist in Persian you know it's not something that Persian said but Farukh Farusad said that in her poem and by that she means may you prosper now am I going to say in 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 the, the English version may you prosper I'm gonna say, may you be green from head to toe, hoping that after you've read the poem, you're gonna go out and start using that, telling each other, may you be green from head to toe. Why not? It's beautiful. Right. This is how we enrich a language. Shakespeare gave us so many you know, new things. Why not? Why don't we do that um, also as, as literary translators, yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And, uh, you know, I tend to choose metaphrase over paraphrase. And I really like those literal uh, transposition of things. And, uh, you know, I'm really attracted to that kind of weirdness, strangeness in language. And there is a Japanese author you may know named Yoko Tawada, who is of my generation. She's a fiction writer who lives in Germany and who writes both in German and Japanese. And a lot of that kind of thing happens in her work, both in German and Japanese. Many of the, uh, so to speak, meta, meta, what? Metaphrastic, Metaphrastic pun or metaphrastic, you know, invention, you know? Something new to say. Something is always invented in her work. That's uh, that's a good part of it.
2: I think um, I'm reminded a little bit of um, the Australian poet Ouyang Yu, who writes. Um, Poems that cont- basically the ideal reader for him is someone who is bilingual in Chinese and English. It's not, well, you know, no one in the whole world is bilingual in Chinese and English, so he must have a really small audience. He's, you know, he's got an amazingly enormous implied audience, but he does a lot of that kind of punning between languages and stuff that you only really fully understand the richness of if you've got both or if you've decided from reading him that you've got to go and find out what's really going on. And I think that, that, as Sholei as was saying, that can enrich everybody. If we bring um, inc- incredibly fascinating nuggets of slightly strange stuff across from the other language, it can enrich our own language and it can also prompt people to then go and try and find out, you know, what was that? Where did that come from? What was she working with in the original when she said that? Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm fascinated by those kind of, uh, you know, poetic and literary documents that span lots of different linguistic spaces. You can kind of think of it as a whole bunch of Venn diagrams meeting in the middle in this document, but kind of with echoes going out yeah. all, all through the, the place. Um, so I wondered if we might talk about your, your recent magnum opus, cholet, the Conference of the Birds, just a little bit now. Um you have this wonderful passage in the, in the notes in the beginning, which, with your permission, I'd like to read out so that the folks who haven't already bought the book can go, <laughs> can be inspired to even um, to rush the table afterwards. Um, but Cholet writes um, about the process of bringing this 12th century Persian poem across into contemporary English. Um, as you said before, translation is a scalpel. It cuts to reveal and to heal, It's exciting and painful. It bridges, it connects, it is violent but loving. It is death that leads to rebirth. Translation is magic. 12th century Persian and contemporary English are as different as sky and sea. The best I can do as a poet is to reflect one into the other. The sea can reflect the sky with its moving stars, shifting clouds, gestations of the moon and migrating birds, but ultimately the sea is not the sky. By nature it is liquid, it ripples, there are waves. If you are a fish living in the sea, you can only understand the sky if its reflection becomes part of the water. Therefore, this this translation aims at recreation of the original into a still living and breathing work of literature. I think that's the most beautiful kind of poem about translation I've ever heard and that's a lovely image to add to the, all of the different metaphors that people have tried to describe translation with over the course of the centuries. Um, and as as well as kind of bearing in mind that that mission to reflect the sea in the sky, you also talk about um, the special considerations of translating a sacred text because of you know, the Sufi spiritual kind of underpinnings of the whole thing and... Um, and about preserving the otherness, which is something that's come up quite a lot of the text. And I remember thinking as I read all of that, that is amazing and also incredibly daunting when you have, you know, 4,700-odd couplets and you try to keep that kind of shining vision in mind while you're doing the daily grind of doing all of those couplets. Was there ever a point when you thought, "I, I can't do this I want someone to take this away from me.
1: All the time. But I had signed the contract. <laughs> um, okay, so... I experienced translation as a writer, okay, not as a scholar. So that's really important, something to un- important to understand about me. And what I wrote there is my experience as a creator, as a writer translating. Okay. So 4,780 rhyming couplets. Continuous. Continuous. Like you open the book and you go da 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 for hundreds of pages, right? Now, if you think about it, Atar, in the 12th century, when he wrote this, he meant it not, to be instru- not only to be instructive, but also entertaining. This is how people read things, because they didn't really read it. It was recited, right? I wasn't going to do the same thing, because Attar would have wanted this to be entertaining, One would have wanted it to be experienced the same way people experienced it in the 12th century. So what I did was first of all, I uh, gave sections titles because in our 21st century world, this is how we process things. Things have to have titles. The stories have to have titles. You know, it has to be in sections. Then I translated the speech of the birds and atar, which is really beautiful. and It's part of the story in modern accessible poetry, and then there are stories within the story, and the stories are very entertaining. Some of them are irreverent, some of them are sexy. They're fantastic. So through the poetry, you get all these spiritual stuff, then bam, you, it's about a story about a donkey who farted. And you go, well, how does this fit in, the spiritual thing, but then you get it. It's beautiful. So I translated those into poetic prose, right? So, yeah, so that's, that's how I experienced the Conference of the Birds. Sin, Farouk Farouk's poetry, was something else. But, you know, this was, yeah, I, I, many, many times I wanted to stop because it was just backbreaking. But I have to tell you this, this translation of this book changed my inner being. This is a very powerful work. It really is. And to this day, I keep a copy next to my bed, and anytime I have a question, I open it at random, and it always has the answer. Always. It never fails. In fact, if you come up to me and I open one for you, uh, at random, it will you will be amazed. I've done it with all my friends. So it was... a. It was a gift to me. Atar gave a gift to me, so it was my pleasure.
2: And now thanks to you, we can all enjoy the gift, which we're very grateful for. Um, So I was just wanting also to ask um, another question, and this leads a little bit more into um, the translation of sin. Um, When you're working in a space where there are a lot of other competing translations, and because Farooq Farazad is very seminal, important Iranian poet, there are many, not only individual poems of hers, but lots of kind of selected and collected and facing page translations um, out there. Um, do you ever look at other translations of the same work that you're about to start, even if it's just to decide what not to do, or do you like to come to it kind of uncontaminated, as it were?
1: Well, I wouldn't use the word uh, contamination. It's it's a lot of... Um These people who've translated this work, they've done hard work. Some of them have been scholars. Some of them, you know, and of course I have read them before, obviously, you know, because that's what I do. I I like to read. But no, when I actually sat down with each of them, I did not want to be influenced by interpretations of these works. I admit of. On a few occasions when I was doing the Conference of the Birds, I did go to Dick Davis on a very few occasions because every scholarly book I looked at would not tell me what a certain passage meant. And they would just skip it. They didn't know, so they would just skip it. They would just go over. And I was was lost, and I'd ask people, and everybody had a different answer. So once or twice I went to see what Dick Davis did, and he had skipped it too, all right? So I didn't actually see it. So I had to make, make up my own interpretation. So no, no, I don't do that. But some, you know what? In my culture so far, most of the translators, scholars have been male. I come from a male-dominated culture. I was the first woman to translate the work of an iconic female poet who changed poetry for women in our culture. And I was the first woman to translate her. So that meant something. Atar, the way I brought my femininity to it, was because I realized, I mean, I I basically followed how our language functions, which is, we don't have pronouns. Look at every single translation of Iranian literature done by male scholars, everybody's a he, everybody cool is a he. Now, the soul is genderless. Why? So I respected that. There is no he or she. And if there is a he or she, they're both equally present. So
2: perhaps that's what I brought to these works as a woman. That's fabulous. I hadn't—I hadn't quite worked out that you were the the first woman to to tackle faroukhzad because there's many who have tried after you, but I didn't realize you actually opened that door. And you know, she talks about stuff you shouldn't have been talking about as a woman in mid-century Iran. You know, but so you much know st- what?
1: I have to say one more thing about Furu faroukhzad One of the things that all the male scholars either missed or didn't want to translate. She has a poem about masturbation. And you know what? It's called bathing, and you know it's 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 there. Okay, she doesn't say masturbation, but it's there. And they just it just was. Why? Because a woman must never masturbate. You know, God forbid.
2: <laughs> it's amazing. I- no, no, it's fabulous. It, 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 it leads into some stuff that was happening in one of the workshops this morning. But one more question to, to Suga Sensei, if I could. Um, it's, it's more kind of stepping back about uh, and thinking about cultural context. And when you do the transcreation, thinking about the information that is missing that the reader in the target language might need... And how do you approach that? Do you do extensive notes or do you do as few notes as possible and try and put the extra information in the document somehow? How do you?
3: I usually don't use any translator's note. Uh, only for something very special like such and such plant or bird. Only we see, in, the, for example, in the Caribbean area, things like that. But... Um, you know, but I also don't do much of uh, throwing in some kind of exegesis into the text itself. So I'm pretty much faithful to whatever comes. And in Japan, usually you are given the chance to uh, write an end-of-the-volume essay by the translator. And if you have to explicate something, I just explain those things in my own essay as a translator in the end of the volume. But that's that's really how it works. Yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There's a particular poem of yours that I'm thinking of. It's There's a couple of different translations floating around, but it's in your transit blues. It's the one that begins with the seven ravens. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it, there's a line in that or a, an expression in that um, Seven ra- ravens are standing on this wasted or deserted shore. Here was a town until yesterday. And for a Japanese reader, if they read... ...kino made kono ...they would immediately think of uh, March 2011... Yes. ...and the, the tsunami and the earthquake that devastated eastern Japan. And that's just... For a Japanese reader reading today, that's just what that means... ...and that's the context in which they would understand that poem. But I know um, from talking to other people who've read that poem, they don't necessarily tie that poem to that time and place. They read it as a like a post-apocalyptic poem or a, a poem about kind of general disaster. And it could be a future disaster or a, a disaster in a dream or nightmare. And they, um, they, of course, they each have their own way of interpreting that poem based on on where they think it might be happening Um, but I suppose that's the freedom that you give to the reader when you don't um, put a note about context they can take what you've made and they can make a new um, thing do you have anything Uh, else you want to say? That
3: piece was written as a part of my uh, 10 or 12 uh, poems written immediately after March 11 and I titled them Waves of Absence. And it was, uh, it was written for a, a literary journal in Japan and published maybe two months after the earthquake and the tsunami hit. So it was there. And the people's imagination was with the tsunami. So I just let it go with the readers. And after seven years now, probably not so many people associated with the tsunami anymore because other things have have been happening in Japan too you know these days I have to realize that Japan has such a violent climate and such you know so uh, as time goes by the people's reception of our work will necessarily change and we should leave a wide margin of interpretation or freedom for the readers. And that's, that's the best solution, because somebody will, at one point, remember, oh, this must have been written for this occasion, you know, things like
0: that. That was Shola Wolpe and Keijiro Suga in a discussion on poetry translation with Melinda Smith. This podcast is made possible by Ipsy, the International Poetry Studies Institute and the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. My name is Shane Strange. Thank you for listening.